Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Breaking Points with Crystal and Sagar. We're going to be totally upfront with you. We took a big risk going independent. To make this work, we need your support to beat the corporate media. CNN, Fox, MSNBC, they are ripping this country apart. They are making millions of dollars doing it. To help support our mission of making all of us hate each other less, hate the corrupt ruling class more, support the show. Become a Breaking Points Premium member today where you get to watch and listen to the entire show ad-free and uncut an hour early before everyone else. You get to hear our reactions to each other's monologues. You get to participate in weekly Ask Me Anythings. And you don't need to hear our annoying voices pitching you like I am right now. So what are you waiting for? Go to breakingpoints.com, become a premium member today, which is available in the show notes. Enjoy the show, guys. Good morning, everybody. Happy Tuesday. We have an amazing show for everybody today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed we do. Um, We've got a bunch of really fascinating stories this morning. So Amazon was caught destroying out one warehouse over 130,000 items per week. Uh, We're going to dig into that. Some really fascinating rulings from the Supreme Court, including on the NCAA. And then I'm also focused on my monologue on one regarding Goldman Sachs. Everybody coming together to let them off the hook. Good old-fashioned bipartisanship. Gotta love that. (laughs) Um, Sagar's taking a look at the rise of barstool conservatives. Today is New York City's mayoral race primary in, like, the worst political contest of all time. Ross Farkhan is going (laughs) to dig into all of the dynamics there and what to expect. But we wanted to start with American Airlines canceling a whole bunch of flights and basically blaming their workers. This is a huge story that actually uh, ABC News, mainstream media, actually does a decent job, enough at least in order to sum up the situation. Let's take a listen. We'll dissect it on the other side. 
This morning, the cancellation of hundreds of flights is being partially blamed on a staffing crunch as a record number of travelers return to the skies. American Airlines canceling 123 flights on Saturday, 178 on Sunday, and today, more than 100 flights are canceled already. The airline blaming significant staffing shortages and maintenance issues. American says it will continue to cancel at least 50 to 60 flights a day for the rest of June and 50 to 80 flights per day in July. So there's a lot going on here, Crystal. Obviously, people look at that and say, hey, what's going on here? Do we have a labor shortage, all of that? Well, you know, it just turns out, though, that if you dig a little bit deeper, you might remember about a year and a half ago whenever we designed a custom bailout for the airline industry, which I was fine with. We had Sarah Nelson on the show yeah. um, who was talking about how vital it was in order to make sure flight attendants got paid. And because the airline industry itself, like when if you let it bottom out, you're completely screwed. Part of the thing, though, is if you're going to bail them out, you would say, oh, maybe we're going to put some restrictions on that money. Well, let's take a trip down memory lane, shall we? Put it up there on the screen in terms of how exactly we designed this thing. $10.6 million in compensation the CEO received last year and still forced thousands of workers into leave early retirement and furloughs, now blaming labor shortages. <laughs> Go ahead and throw the next one up there in terms of how we exactly designed this bailout. $5.8 billion in pandemic assistance from the Department of Treasury. $4.1 billion of that was a grant. It wasn't even a loan. Only $1.7 billion of that was actually the loan. And yet today, they are canceling now 1% of their total flights. And it's not me saying boo-hoo for you know, commercial airline passengers. There are freight concerns. But really what it is is that these companies took literally billions of dollars in, in pandemic bailout. And now they spent that time furloughing people, firing people, reducing their labor, and now they can't keep up with the demand. Yeah. And they're trying to create some artificial story about, oh, we have the labor shortage or whatever. We gave you literally billions and billions and billions of dollars and now you're crippling the U.S. economy once again, and you're making it seem as if this entire thing was a total joke in the first place. It really is terrible what they've done here. And I do feel bad for people who maybe this is like their first vacation, oh, their first venture out after the, the pandemic. For those people, like the regular oh families so who've saved up their money to go somewhere after the pandemic, and it's like their first time. I do feel really bad for these people where it turns into a total nightmare. Your entire trip might be ruined. And I love that they don't give any context for, oh, it's a labor shortage. Mm -hmm. Well, why do you have a labor shortage? We bailed you out with the express provision in the original bailout package that this money should go to keeping your workforce. So what happened? They took the money. They kept those workers until the date that we said, okay, after September 30th, I think was the last date, then you can do whatever you want after those bailout provisions expire. And they went ahead and laid off, furloughed or forced down, 30,000 of their workers. Yeah. So it's not like just, oh, boo-hoo, we have a labor shortage and there's nothing we can do about it. You're the one that created that labor shortage. And somehow that context is wildly missing from most of the mainstream coverage. I took a look at, I was actually perusing CNBC uh -huh. yesterday. Oh, I need to watch them more often because it is incredible, <laughs> the type of content they put on. I jumped right from a segment 
the headline of the segment was Jim Cramer weighs in on like American Airlines layoffs. Yeah, go ahead and put and a went, in my head. But it was yeah. even worse than that. I, he didn't even say anything about it. It was just him complaining about like lazy millennials not wanting to come into the office. And then the next one up was some dude who was like trashing Redditors for not respecting the fundamentals. Anyway, this is how CNBC covered the American Airlines situation, just framing it as a labor shortage, just coming dropping out of the sky with absolutely zero context. Let's take a listen. CNBC.com airline reporter Leslie Josephs is covering the story for us. She joins us now. Leslie, why is it American in particular that can't seem to get workers? So what American is dealing with now, they have packed their schedule a little bit fuller than some of their competitors or closest competitors like Delta and United. And what they're finding is there are a shortage of workers. Um, they're in the middle of training pilots that might have been uh, idled uh, during the pandemic. I mean, remember, think back to a year ago, we were retiring planes. Airlines were telling employees to please, please, please take uh, an early retirement or a buyout package. So they their focus has, has switched entirely. So that's why they're seeing a little bit of this strain. Add to that a little bit of seasonal weather, and this is the recipe for what we're seeing right now. It's amazing. So they nothing, about, nothing about the bailout provisions, nothing about how they laid off 30,000 right. workers. Just right. like, well, you know, they're ramping up a little different than everybody. They got to get these pilots back online. Ridiculous. No, it's terrible. And this is actually... This maybe is a little bit of a corollary to I've talked about how in many ways I think the labor shortage is just revenge for Americans' bad policy, which is that at the beginning of the pandemic, we made the choice to force people onto unemployment. Mm -hmm. What we should have done is actually what we did for the airline industry in the very first place, yeah. which was say, hey, we're going to pay you billions and billions of dollars. Fine. And in exchange, you have to use that money in order to keep people on your work for, on your, in workplace because the airline industry is critical to the way we function, freight, and all of that. Actually, I think every industry should have been declared critical, and that's how we should have done everything. But what did I forget? Which is that in the United States, what they did is they wrote in these ridiculous provisions making it so, oh, until September 30th. <laughs> I actually remember covering it at Rising. It was maybe David Dane or somebody else there who was like, listen, guys, like, come September 30th, or not September 31st, um, what, August or whatever comes next? October. October. Okay, there we go. October. <laughs> Come October 1st, he's like, everyone's going to get fired. Everyone's going to get furloughed. And I was like, oh, my God, he's totally right. And that is exactly what happened. And now here we are, 16, 17 months now into the pandemic. These people have been laid off. Travel demand has actually surged. A lot of people have savings, like you were saying, people who bought flights and want to take their first vacation. And now there's a fake labor shortage in terms of American Airlines. We actually did everything that we were supposed to do in terms of designing that program. We just wrote it so that they get billions. Then they didn't actually have that much restrictions on the way that they were going to spend the money and then made it so that they created their own fake labor shortage. And what also grinds my gears is if you're a small business and your paycheck protection program and you got a, lo a loan like this, you did not have the ability to fire people at all. You had to use all that money to keep people on payroll. Mm. Again, a provision I support. So if you were a small business, you had all these restrictions on how you got your money. You yeah. didn't get some custom bailout from the Fed. You didn't get some custom uh, bailout from Congress. You had to apply to the bank and even then the bank like put you in whatever order they want, limited pool, airline gets a specially cut and tailor designed bailout and they get all this money and then in the end at the end of the day what's going on they didn't even use it in the way that we told them to it's fundamentally unfair the way that we did this entire thing so this whole episode with the airlines and as i was thinking about this yesterday has actually kind of changed my 
mindset over what we should have done at the beginning of the pandemic. I'll tell you why in just Mm -hmm. a second. So I was reading uh, Andrew Ross Sorkin when these bailout programs were being contemplated a while back, wrote a piece about, does the airline industry really need this bailout? Hmm. And what he wrote is, no other industry affected by the pandemic received more from the government. There was no special program for hotels, for restaurants, for travel agencies. Companies in those industries had to line up for the small business focus, paycheck protection program, and pray. The largest loan the program could make was $10 million, yes, as opposed right. to the $5 billion, $5 billion that the airline industry received. And so What I realized here is that you're right. We actually sort of held this up and we talked to Sarah Nelson as the model of what they should have done for other industries. Well, you know what? It turns out actually the most effective part of the program of all the different relief programs that we had in place was just giving people cash, Mm -hmm. just straight giving people cash, the addition of the child tax credit, the unemployment insurance system. Yeah, it was clunky, but that also just putting cash straight in people's pockets if that worked more effectively Those were the pieces that lowered poverty and actually now are giving workers a tiny bit of cushion so that they can say, like, screw you, I'm not going back to work on the front lines for $7.25. Screw you, I'm not working for tips at whatever. What is it, $2 and whatever? So I actually think we have so much of a mindset in this country that, like, oh, we have to be skeptical every time we're handing out cash directly to people. Maybe they're going to be lazy. Maybe they're not going to spend it in the right way. Maybe they're going to be irresponsible for this money. But the reality is actually the individual human beings use the money in far more efficient and productive ways than these giant companies. So even this program, which again was kind of the best of the best in terms of it required that you kept the employees on. Of course, the minute that they can lay them off, the minute those provisions expire, they go ahead and do that. They give their CEO $10 million pay compensation so that he can apparently like completely yeah. fail on the other side yeah, of the pandemic. You. So even in the best case scenario, we were better off just straight giving cash to people. And oh, by the way, that's something our federal government, which is its capacity has been stripped down over years and years and decades and decades, something that they were able to do very efficiently and very effectively. Yeah, actually, it's more of a matter of timeline. I, I agree with you. Look, at the end of the day, I want people to have the money. I think at the time, the reason I was arguing for it was because people's bank account information already existed with their employers. Mm-hmm. And we didn't ha- we had some initial implementation problems around the stimulus checks. I want to say it I think took we two also and a half just weeks. didn't think it was likely that the American political system would be like, instead, let's just hand out oh, like, yeah, large amounts of cash. Correct. Yes, this yeah. was more like- This is feasible. pre-Overton window. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was like, look, like we got to give people money. We need it as soon as humanly possible. And the way I was thinking about it was that, look, people are already attached to their payroll. And also, if you think about it from a business concern perspective, like, like businesses are like, we can't find anyone, et cetera. I actually understand that. I sympathize, especially if you're one of the smallest businesses or one of those people who truly can't compete or you didn't get a PPP loan or any of these things. The problem that we had, again, is that Washington basically kicked people off onto unemployment, then left them to dry and screwed around with the plus ups. Didn't we not have any plus up in terms of like extra cash for months on end while Congress was getting its act together? And then people, because of these like crazy lockdown procedures, some people were on unemployment, went off unemployment, back on yeah. unemployment. That takes months. Oh, the, and those systems were total, are totally rickety were and a total disaster. I've heard from many of you yeah. actually telling me about how often and difficult it was in order to get your unemployment. And so I was saying like, look, the easiest way thing to do this is the payroll, but all the retconning of like what we should have done and et cetera, it's just so disgusting to watch this company who got 
billions of dollars and to come out and now say they have some labor shortage. It was like, what was the point? Why did we bail you out? Yeah. We gave you billions and billions to make sure your industry remained robust. And again, fair. Airlines are, we need airlines. The country needs it in order to move freight. Passengers is critical. Even at the height of the pandemic, we had it all for a reason. But it really pisses me off watching them come out and make these fake excuses. And it just makes you think, like, can we do anything fairly in this country anymore? Yeah. Like, what are you supposed to think if you can't catch a flight because of this? And you see how much money that these people got in the pandemic. So this is also from Andrew Ross Sorkin again about, like, how we could have used the money in a better fashion. So the money that we gave the airlines likely saved about 75,000 jobs. Okay. Really significant. Great. Critical yeah. for those people. At a cost of $300,000 per job. Wow. Those people are not making $300,000, yeah. by the way. I mean, you know, yeah. some of the pilots, flight attendants, yeah. like th these are good middle-class jobs for flight attendants, but they're not making three hundred k a year. So we spent that much money. It's just wildly inefficient, yeah. right? Giving, I, I really have come to believe that individual human beings can be trusted with direct cash infusions to a far greater extent than any of these businesses that are always, always, always looking for every way to cheat, suck up that money for themselves, like buy back their stock, all of that stuff. And that's the other piece of this. If we even go back before the pandemic, why were the airlines so close to the wall oh, yeah. that the minute there was a drop in their revenue and, and their passengers who were flying, they were totally screwed? Well, it's because they spent all that, the corporate tax cut money from Trump, mm -hmm. they spent that on stock buybacks so that they could enrich themselves and enrich their shareholders rather than investing in their business and making sure that they had that resiliency if there was a downturn. So um, again, as I look at this, kind of my big takeaway is we should just trust people and working Americans way, way, way before we trust these idiots who find every way they possibly can to fail, and then just expect that they're going to be bailed out no matter how unconscionable their actions. And this is the thing these people don't get. People, I, I don't know how often you think you can get away with this. Like in terms, we had it saw in 2008, Wall Street bailout, give everybody bonuses, AIG. I mean, that was probably as close to the biggest popular outrage that we saw on something economically in a long time. Obviously, that faded. But then you see this American Airlines story. Next time around, how are you like, do you think you're going to get bailed out? Do you really think so? Maybe. Now, maybe yes. you will because the yes, government I and do. all of that congressional <laughs> system is there. But like, this all has to break at some point. And so, look, I've, I mean, American Airlines yesterday, it was like trending. It was one of the biggest stories in the country. And coincidentally, I didn't see very much coverage of it. Like, yes, mm -hmm. you know, CNBC goes and covers it. For but 30 seconds with some 30 like, seconds very misleading like, American Airlines points. PR tells us. <laughs> and they're like, and now, let's have back their to CEO you. on yeah, to let's tell have you the CEO about how shitty CEOs their workers are. here on to explain <laughs> why um, he can't get any workers and didn't misspend $5 billion. Same thing, though. I mean, I saw it trending all across the country in terms of the internet outrage. People were contacting us about it and more. But the actual mainstream coverage of it wasn't there. Mm. So it just seems to me like one of those mainstream backlashes, or sorry, a backlash against the mainstream and very popular outrage around this type of story because people understood and saw that while they were waiting for a check, while they were waiting for extra unemployment, while they wanted the lockdowns to end, while they wanted some proper information, that these people were getting bailed out to the tune of billions. And we remember, 
some of the initial bailout outrage whenever people understood, I think it was uh, David Dayen talking about the trillions of dollars the Federal Reserve and all that were shooting, which would have been fine if you had reciprocal programs for people who were working. And that just faded off as time went. Now we're at this strange time. Like people do have money in the bank, 200 million Americans or so are not. I mean, they're not like a, you know, they're like a still a paycheck away from bankruptcy. But you know, that's a little bit better, apparently, than where things were before. And yet the f- memory has not faded mm. around how people remember this type of stuff. And I suspect that the next time around that it made things be different. Although, you know, maybe I should be more cynical. Our political class doesn't respond to popular will. I mean, that's no, just that's the reality. True. And so and especially when you have a situation like maybe you're in Atlanta or what's is it Houston? That's the big hub in Texas where yeah, there's a lot of jobs at stake. And the airlines kind of, oh, well, your, your economy is going to crash right, if you don't true. get the bailout. It's a very compelling case. Um, you know, your, your point about media, I think, is really important, really interesting. Because why does this not get coverage? Because there's not a Trump angle and yes. there's not a Biden angle. So because you can't fit it neatly into this, like, Democrats are bad or Republicans are bad narrative, they're just like, eh, we don't really care. Even though it, you know, is something that says so much, not just about this current moment, But there's so many lessons to be taken from it about how we approach this entire situation to start with. And if you don't think that we're going to find ourselves in another downturn, pandemic, collapse, crash, where we're faced with these kinds of questions, again, you're fooling yourself. Oh, 100 percent. And actually, to that point, it's not just Democrats bad, Republicans bad. They were everybody was complicit in this. The White House, all parties. I mean, it passed 99-0, if I recall, through the U.S. Senate. This is what happens, you know, when you have total and complete bipartisanship. And I think it's an important lesson to remember exactly how these things play out. Speaking of corporate malfeasance, we got <laughs> another good one for you from Amazon. Yeah, okay. This is probably one of the craziest things I've ever seen. So ITV News out of the U.K. has caught Amazon destroying millions of dollars worth of merchandise for no discernible reason. And I'll explain why they say that they do so, but let's watch this video first because it's totally nuts. Let's take a listen. So from a Friday to a Friday, our target was approximately 130,000 items a week. The target to destroy from one center was 130,000 items. Yes. Okay, so let me explain this to you, which is that what they caught there with the guy who was on camera was that Amazon is destroying millions of items of unsold stock in just one of its UK warehouses every single year, and that this is indicative of a company-wide policy. So what they found is that they are destroying 130,000 items a week, and we're talking about brand new stuff, Dyson fans, Hoover vacuums, the occasional MacBook and iPad, the other day, 20,000 face masks still in their wrappers. Here's what he said. Overall, 50% of all items are unopened, still in their shrink wrap. The other half are returns and in good condition. Staff have become numb in terms of what they are asking to do. Wow. So you might ask, why exactly is all of this happening? Well, What's happening is that because of their business model, they have it such that they store stuff inside of their warehouse. 
It's called Fulfilled by Amazon. It's actually one of the most profitable parts of their business, which is that you're a third-party seller, but in order to take advantage of Amazon's distribution, you can Amazon will list your goods on its website, obviously, and then when I buy it, Amazon will fulfill the order because they have the third-party goods inside of their warehouse. But then the question arises, like, what exactly do you do whenever you have extra stuff? And it turns out that the actual physical policy, at least look, at least in the UK, in terms of what's happening, is that they are destroying it. They're not even going and trying to donate it to anybody. They're not making any efforts. They're literally incinerating and destroying hundreds of millions of dollars worth of goods. And it's this is so insane. It's actually roiling UK politics. Even Boris Johnson weighed in on this. Yeah. But I thought this was important enough, Crystal, because are they doing the same stuff here? We should ask a lot of questions because if they are, I think there's a lot of people out there who could use some of this stuff and it's just totally unopened and they're just destroying it. It's it's insane. It is completely nuts. And your question is the right one because yeah. just to emphasize again, 130,000 items from one warehouse every single week. week. Yeah. Like, think about that. Well, you think their policies are different here? Do you see Amazon giving out goods to the needy right. across America? No, we don't. So what's happening to those goods? It's an excellent question, and kudos them for doing the reporting here. They got basically a whistleblower inside the mm -hmm. warehouse. They were able to film undercover footage revealing um, how this was taking place. They even had footage of them like taking these electronics to essentially the dump um, to for them to be destroyed. You know, I got to give it to him. Boris Johnson actually made a pretty good comment yeah. about it. He said, this is an indictment of a consumerist society. So as much of it as it's an indictment of Amazon and their practices and how gross it is that, I mean, basically the bottom line is why would they do this? It's because they have to keep the prices for all these goods high so they can't just be giving stuff away because then people won't want to buy stuff as much, right? right? So it would depress demand for the other stuff that they're trying to sell. So rather than giving it to people who need these goods, who can't afford these goods, they rather just destroy it in order to protect their profit margins. So certainly an indictment of Amazon and their practices. And also, by the way, there are a lot of questions over whether they've been lying mm -hmm. about exactly what they do, because apparently they'd been asked before, like, how much of your goods are destroyed? And they're like, almost nothing, next to nothing, very, very little. Is your definition of very, very little 130 thousand items at one warehouse every single week. I don't think that that would be a reasonable person's definition of very little. So Amazon, totally culpable, but it does just so show, you know, how gross it is. The fact that we've all had drilled into us in American society, Western society writ large, like this religion around consumerism, mm -hmm. like we're always sold this bill of goods that like the next item, the next purchase, the next whatever is going to make us happy. It's going to make us popular. It's going to make us beautiful. It's going to make us fulfilled when the reality is anything but. And at the same time, it's just it's such an incredibly wasteful. It's like grotesquely wasteful. So while we're at the same time at the individual level, like trying in different ways to be responsible. Let me see if I can recycle a little more. Let me see if I can, you know, use a little bit more of the food rather than throwing it out. These giant corporations are just incredibly abusive with the resources of the world. Um, just, you know, all of these manufactured goods that create tremendous pollution and tremendous waste then just being tossed aside into a landfill 
to decompose over hundreds and hundreds of years. It really is a sort of like grotesque picture of exactly what we're doing here as a society. Yeah, and what's crazy to me too is it just shows how full of it they are and how much they bought the political system because yes, while Boris Johnson may have said that, I love this. And it's just good to see that all Western societies are the same. (laughs) The business secretary um, told ITV News, this is in the UK, Mm -hmm. was very surprised about the findings of our investigation and said he wanted to get to the bottom. But he adds, I know Amazon is committed to net zero. They've committed huge amounts of investment to the rainforest to keep the rainforest going. I'm surprised. I haven't read the report, so I'll have to take a look at the response is. But what's funny is, if you read Amazon's statement, they basically use the same, they use the same language. We are working towards a goal of zero product disposal. Our priority is to resell, donate to charitable organizations, or recycle unsold products. No items are sent to the landfill in the UK. As a last resort, we will send items to energy recovery, but we are working hard to drive the number of times this happens down to zero. So it's like- Work a little harder, guys. The same <laughs> language that- Amazon uses, speaking like, we're working hard to get zero, and you know they talk about net zero climate and all this stuff, is the same stuff that comes out of the mouth of the business. I think it's the equivalent of our commerce secretary mm. in the UK. Mm. Amazing. It, even Amazon runs stuff over in the UK. Oh, I didn't even know. Of course. And this is the amazing thing. If they're throwing away millions of things in the UK, which has a population, I think, like one-sixth or like one-seventh the size of the U.S., what the hell is going on over here in terms of what's going on in our warehouses and what exactly is being done? Because not just in terms of the way they treat their workforce, but the physical goods inside of these inside of these warehouses that could be used for so many better purposes. I think it just reveals again, and it's true, which is that we were talking yesterday about widget brain around Mm. housing, where people are like, oh, look, when you're a widget, you're just better off if, you know, renting and, and, you know, disregarding any of the social benefits of housing. This is the same thing. They're like, look, we need 30% more warehouse space. Uh, The fastest way to get of that warehouse space is just to junk it. I mean, in one of these pictures is a Samsung QLED TV. That's like a $3,000 TV. That's That's nuts in terms of what, who could, imagine like a nursing home or like, I don't know, a kid's home. There are so many people out there, UK too. They're not actually that rich of a country um, in terms of what some of the people over there could use it. So I just think it's a really gross indictment of everything. I am very glad that ITV did this investigation. Yeah, and you're right to say like, let's not give Boris Johnson too much credit here. You made a nice comment, but you know, you have power to do a lot more than make a nice comment. And it is also interesting that his, Focus is not, he says this is an indictment of a consumer society rather than like, this is an indictment of Amazon and we're going to get to the bottom (laughs) of what happened here, right? Right, So, yes. That's a good point. (laughs) Excellent point there. (laughs) Hey, so remember how we told you how awesome premium membership was? Well, here we are again to remind you that becoming a premium member means you don't have to listen to our constant pleas for you to subscribe. So what are you waiting for? Become a premium member today by going to breakingpoints.com, which you can click on in the show notes. Okay, we have an update for you on the bipartisan infrastructure negotiations uh, that have been ongoing. I mean, the bottom line here is this whole attempt at a bipartisan package is pretty much a hot mess. Um, One good thing did happen. Biden came out. Remember, one of the pay-fors that they've been floating with this is a gas tax, which is absurd, absurd that you're going to make the working class of this country long-suffering and with, like, the least ability to pay, that you're going to put the infrastructure price tag on their back. So Biden did come out 
and rule that out. And they're framing it. And I mean, he has on these sorts of things, he has pretty good political instincts, I think. And he also sees it as um, would be breaking his pledge not to raise taxes on anyone making less than $400,000 a year, which I think is true. We could throw this tweet up on the screen showing what Biden had to say there. So this was Jen Psaki to CBS this morning, said Biden is a hard no on the gas tax, an idea that's been floating around that certainly the president would not support is a gas tax, which would raise taxes on people making less than 400 k a year. We're not going to stand for that. So very clear language, very unequivocal. At least someone has half a brain over there because a gas tax is like the dumbest idea that has ever. It's, it's politically dumb, yeah. and it's also the wrong thing it's to immoral. do. Just like yeah. on every level, it would be a bad direction to go in. Okay, so that's off the table. So what are the other pay-fors that are being proposed in this bipartisan infrastructure deal? Well, David Dan, who always, always follow what this guy is doing. He's one of the few that really digs into the details and, and gets down to the nitty gritty of what's actually being proposed. And it turns out, remember when Trump was proposing his infrastructure deal time and time again, and a lot of liberals and a lot of progressives were rightfully very exercised that this was like basically it was a privatization of infrastructure, giveaway to the private sector, um, and the pay-fors there were very unconscionable. Well, a lot of those same mechanisms are being included in this bipartisan deal. So let's throw David Dayen's tear sheet up here on the screen. He says, bipartisan Senate infrastructure plan is a stocking horse for privatization. The scheme would fund new infrastructure by selling off old infrastructure. And by the way, Trump proposed the same hmm. thing. So here's um, some of the details. Let me just read you a little bit from the piece. He says, the really scary piece in terms of the pay force is labeled public-private partnerships, private activity bonds, and asset recycling, okay? In the name of building world-class infrastructure, these lawmakers would sell it off in fire sales to private financiers. We have lots of experience with infrastructure privatization that strongly suggest it should be avoided. Those first two things, public-private partnerships, you can imagine what that is. That's basically like toll roads, that sort of thing where you're like, hey, private company, why don't you build our infrastructure? And then you can charge user fees, mm -hmm. again, largely to working class oh, people, yes. to pay for it. Um, you have private activity bonds. That's just like debt by another name. And asset recycling, which is one of these terms that you'd read and you're like, oh, recycling. That sounds good, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what's going That sounds creative. Sounds what's going on there? Love it. What they mean is we're going to take our existing port or whatever sell it off, and then use that money to build some other thing. Um, this has been tried here. It was tried, he points out, it was tried notably in Australia. Total failure, total disaster. Oftentimes, the projects that they sell off were actually good public works projects that the public was benefiting from, that right. the government was receiving tax revenue from, like a port is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. And then the things that they build the like asset that they're, I guess, recycling this into um, turned out to be sort of like harebrained and useless and not particularly well done. The other bottom line piece here is we talked about this a little bit yesterday. There's always this assumption that's like baked into um, the American economic political ethos that, oh, the private sector must be more efficient. They must do a better job. They must do it in lower costs and all of that in a shorter time frame. But it's really not the case um, because, I mean, for a very obvious reason, the private sector has to build in profit margins um, into whatever it is they're doing. So 
We've seen time after time that you should not assume that relying more on the private sector is going to get you into a better place. But it's just, it's interesting because a lot of the criticism of the infrastructure package, the bipartisan infrastructure package thus far, has been around, it's not enough money, something we've talked about here. Um, Also from the left, like, this isn't dealing with climate change whatsoever, both totally, in my view, legitimate criticisms. But this piece has gotten has been ignored until David Dayen pointed out, and it's also really super important. It's super important, and also he just shows how many Democrats are full of it. I mean, I love this line. There was a time when Democrats opposed such schemes. It was during the Trump administration. <laughs> it was and two he years talks ago. exactly yeah. <laughs> about how Democrats rightfully and loudly objected to giving up public assets to private investors yeah. because the biggest money makers would be forward or would be favored. Uh, but. So why would he, I love this, why would Democrats entertain going down the exact same road under Biden until, uh, despite the fact that they rebuffed it under Trump? And I think that we all know what the answer to this is. And it actually is a decent example of like uniparty whenever it comes to the economic proposals that we put forward. And I agree, this is a terrible, absolutely terrible idea. And the Australia part, I actually didn't know. I looked a little bit into it and he's totally right, which is that we borrowed this from a previous scheme And in that case of what happened in Australia, there was actually a lot of outrage over some of the things that were auctioned off that were actually quite not profitable, but net positive or whatever in terms Mm -hmm. of tax revenue. And I've said this a million times, instead of faking all these pay-fors, if there is one thing on earth that you deficit spend, it's called infrastructure. Because we all know that the social and economic benefits explode whenever you have infrastructure. It can open up new areas of commerce. It can open up new business lines. It can open up all sorts of different things and that you will more than recoup it in terms of tax revenue, benefit to the community, and more. Infrastructure is by definition the type of thing that you're supposed to deficit spend for. And instead, we're playing all these like kabuki theater games in D.C., around auctioning things off that we already have, around raising, you know, the private bonds or whatever. Mm-hmm. Reading this, like, why is any of this necessary? Go out and ask people, do you care about how the infrastructure package is paid for? In the most intuitive thing, even people who have businesses and more understand that the type of things that you deficit spend for are investments which are going to pay out 10x longer in the long run. So you put the money down. Well, when you're a government, this is one of the few times that the business whatever example actually does apply, you should do the exact same thing. And so I think the politics around this are just so farcical generally and that the David Dayen piece reveals how in a way – People use deficit politics and pay-fors in order to just cover up for a lot of corporate giveaways. Yeah, it's, That's an, what so, it's so much an ideological it agenda. Yeah. That's right. And actually, I think I think if you ask people, and we've seen some of the polling on this, how they want it to be paid for, they do have a preference. They want rich people and corporations oh, right. the to be taxed. Yeah. That's what they want. I mean, we saw in some of the polling that just the infrastructure package on its own, like, oh, we're going to invest in roads and bridges, et cetera, et cetera, pretty popular. You add to that, like, oh, and we're going to pay for it by taxing rich people. And they're like, oh, hell yeah, I'm mm-hmm. in. It, the polling numbers actually jump up. So it says everything. Just I, I think that's really important to keep in mind as you're watching these negotiations play out. Because oftentimes the way that they're portrayed in, in mainstream media is like, oh, the bipartisan deal, they have to make these trade-offs to make it politically palatable right. for frontline Democrats in the midterms, et cetera, et cetera. No, no, you're actually proposing a plan that is less popular because you're trying to pair it initially with a gas tax, which is ridiculous. But now with these various privatization schemes, which are also unpopular, versus what is a clearly extremely popular position of 
paying for it with increased taxes on people who got tremendously wealthy during the pandemic, whether it's wealthy individuals or corporations. That is what the American people actually want. And so the fact that the political class is so nervous and unsure and basically putting off the table any of that tells you something. This isn't about them wanting the good politics of it. It's about them protecting their donors and protecting their friends in their social circle. And that's exactly how you end up with these harebrained schemes of like, let's sell sell off a port in order to build a new bridge. Watching this thing become Obamacare 2.0 has been really sad. To show that Biden and them actually just learned nothing. Obamacare ended up becoming a corporate nightmare mess. Uh, It became the political albatross that hung around his neck. Now it's June 22nd. Remember that they've already said they cannot hit the September deadline. Um, Okay, I think the exact same thing's going to happen. Republicans are going to filibuster. It's going to go all the way up until like Thanksgiving or Christmas Day or whatever. And at the end of the day, it's going to be a BS bill, which actually doesn't even do very much. It would probably like a trillion dollars or whatever in new spending. It won't be forcefully felt in in many different communities. And there'll be some like windmill package, which will become the bane of, you know, every single Democrat running in the midterms because of a bunch of attack ads. And what do we get from all of this? I think maybe what a modest tax increase on people who are wealthy, maybe. Even then, I don't actually think that's going to pass at all. So, yeah, actually, the only thing that might pass is some sort of fake gas tax. So he may have ruled ruled it out now, but I won't hold my breath understanding how these things are moving through Congress. It's a huge political failure for the Biden administration, in my opinion. Yeah, and and again, a totally unnecessary one, totally unnecessary. And I just think, I'll say it again, I think it says everything about the sort of failed state nature of this country that just the least controversial thing you could possibly do, like fixing a damn bridge, you can't even get your act together Mm -hmm. to do that. The basics of providing not just an investment for, you know, jobs and business community, et cetera, but part of why these privatization schemes are such a problem is there's a lot of basic infrastructure that provides for safe quality of life water systems, wastewater treatment plants, as I covered yesterday in large parts of West Virginia, other rural communities across the country, they don't even have clean drinking water. Like, that's never going to turn a profit for a company. Of course not. So we can't be in the business of only doing projects that are you're going to be able to, like, charge enough toll fees to turn a profit on or charge enough user fees to turn a profit on. You're not going to make money building a, a wastewater treatment plant or a, a water a new water system in McDowell County, West Virginia. So what and, and that's basically what's happened is anything that hasn't been profitable for the private sector hasn't gotten done. And so you've got parts of the country that are reverting back to like pre-New Deal era conditions, reverting back to like developing world conditions because we don't put any sort of a priority on people having the basic standards for like a like the basic level quality of living everything is about profit 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 and apparently that ethos has thoroughly pervaded this new bipartisan infrastructure efforts. Really sad to see. Very sad story. But I think we have some good news, slightly. Sorry, it, yeah. yeah, good news. Um, I, I would temper my enthusiasm for this a little bit more than what some of the media coverage has been. So we got a couple of Supreme Court, notable Supreme Court decisions yesterday. Um, I'm covering one of them in my mm. monologue, which is um, everybody coming together to give away the store to Goldman Sachs and make oh, good. sure good. they can be held accountable for any of their crimes during the financial crisis. We'll get into that one in a second. They did do something 
modestly good here, though, in um, a case involving the NCAA. So I'm sure a lot of you have been following the sort of back and forth of the NCAA is basically like a racket and a monopoly that completely abuses their workers, which are the players, right? Especially in lucrative sports like basketball and football. Mm -hmm. NCAA raking in billions in um, viewership fees to the television networks. And meanwhile, you know, they're very adamant about, oh, we have to protect the purity, integrity of the sport and amateur competition as if this is some virtuous thing that they're doing, even though they themselves can't really even define what it means um, to be an amateur. They've changed the definition over the years. So I'm going to read here a little bit from Vox. Yesterday, the Supreme Court handed down a heavily caveated victory for elite college athletes on Monday. The immediate impact of the court's unanimous decision, nine to nothing, in NCAA versus Alston is that many elite student athletes will receive additional education-related compensation, such as additional scholarship money. But the case could have broader implications and could eventually lead to these athletes being paid salary. So let me break down for you what that means. The question in this case that they decided to rule on was not whether these athletes could be compensated for playing their sport. The question was this one that they made very narrow around this question of additional educational scholarship benefits. Yeah. Right. So this was, again, this isn't about receiving payment. This was about sort of like scholarships and educational scholarships, essentially. Um, So they and this is one of the hallmarks of the Roberts court in this era is he has really tried to sort of cabin these decisions to be as narrow as possible because I think what a lot of court watchers feel is that he recognizes the credibility of the Supreme Court and the structure of the Supreme yes. Court as it stands is very much at risk right now. Mm-hmm. So he's trying not to make a lot of waves. And he's trying to have as many decisions as possible where it's not just the conservatives overriding the liberals. So that's how you get a decision like this where they very narrowly rule on this very specific question about education scholarships, but it's unanimous. And what's giving people hope that this could lead to more dramatic changes is in the opinion as it was written, I think by Gorsuch, actually. He essentially said, look, we're not ruling on the larger compensation piece because you didn't specifically ask us to, but maybe you should try again and see what happens. Actually, so what's other also interesting here was Justice Kavanaugh, and here's what he wrote, quote, nowhere else in America can businesses get away with agreeing not to pay their workers a fair market rate on the theory that the product is defined by not paying their workers a fair market rate, adding, quote, And under ordinary principles of antitrust law, it is not evident why college sports should be any different. The NCAA is not above the law. And so just to recoup, remember, what they have said is that students who play sports as amateurs should not be getting paid because they should should not be getting paid because the amateur nature of the sport, which would corrupt it and make it so that these rules, you know, are cross subsidized and it would make it unfair, et cetera. Now, maybe there was something to that in like 1960, but right now it's totally ridiculous. Just to give you guys insight, like I'm from College Station, Texas, where Texas A&M is. Football is the lifeblood of that mm-hmm. town. Whenever they moved to the SEC, I think over a billion dollars of new revenue came in to College Station. And I remember Johnny Football and Johnny Manziel and all that. The guy single-handedly, I think, brought in hundreds of millions of dollars into the town itself, and he wasn't making a dime. Many of the stars that I've seen come through College Station in my entire lifetime were not compensated until at least some of them went to the NFL. 
some of them, like Johnny, uh, didn't end up doing so well, um, even when they got there. But the point is, is that their time and the amount of economic and social benefit that they were bringing to the towns was immense. And they were being profited off of by the NCAA and by many of these schools who can sell merchandise and who can see huge you know, like additions to their endowments, to their bottom lines that they invest in stadiums and like all this other stuff, but which the students don't get any of. And, and it's just a fundamental question of fairness. So we've seen in like the video games industry in terms of how their likenesses are used, in terms of yeah. how much they're profitive yeah. off of. It is just totally unfair. And I think the fact that Justice Kavanaugh and Justice Gorsuch both put in like little caveats there inviting it, that's kind of the more interesting part here. I think what a lot of the court watchers saw, and this was the lead in the New York Times story as well, is that it underscored uh, that the ban, it basically invited a new case. Right. So it may take a couple of years, but at least in the current composition of the court, I would say that things are looking bro pretty good for college athletes, and I think that's the way that it should be. It's yeah. not fair to let these schools make billions of dollars on the backs of these kids, and they don't get to make a dime. Again, I would I'll believe it when I see it. Yeah. Right. I mean, we've had all these big decisions over the years that people thought were definitely going to go this way or definitely going to go that way. And, oh, you know, ACB's definitely going to rule against Obamacare because she said oh, this yeah. or that in the past. Or, you know, I mean, how long have people who really care a lot about abortion rights on either side of that debate, either pro or against, how long have they thought this is going to be the one and we're reading the tea leaves and it doesn't come to fruition? Roberts, the, the hallmark of Roberts has been to be extremely, extremely cautious and not to make any big sweeping decisions with massive ramifications, which is what we're talking about here. But to talk about like the the morality of it and and the actual you know situation that college athletes are facing, they not only they should they be compensated, they should also be able to unionize yeah. because oh, this absolutely. is this is the other thing. And I mean, I was a college athlete as I was a swimmer though. It wasn't like one of these sports where <laughs> there's actually lucrative and like money money involved. Money involved. Yeah. So, but I did have a firsthand experience of just how much control they have over your life. Right? I mean, you're there supposedly yeah. as a student first. But your sport really controls every aspect of your day. They have entire control over, like, you know, even what times you're studying and whether you're required to go to study hall. You have these, like, academic counselors. You Obviously, your schedule in terms of when you're at the gym and what your training regimen looks like and all of those things, even when you can have classes and when you can't have classes, much more control over your life when you're an NCAA athlete, then I would say almost any other certainly like profession because they they truly have rules that govern every single aspect of your life. So to me, it's not just about the compensation. It's also like players should be able to have a say in what those rules are and what the limitations That's are good, and how yeah. their their days and their schedules are, are governed. Because again, you know, if you're trying to balance a rigorous academic schedule with your sport, sometimes that's made nearly impossible by the requirements that they that they put on top of you. So um, I think that piece is also needs to not be overlooked. The fact that it's not just about players should be profiting off of their skills and their talents that the that the NCAA is exploiting for massive massive profits, but they also should have a say in what their 
employment looks like, essentially, from uh, on a day-to-day basis. Actually, this reminds me. There's actually currently a bill in Congress, which was introduced by Bernie and by Chris Murphy. I remember reading about this yeah. at the time, which would actually allow college athletes to form unions and become employees. Coincidentally, of course, the NCAA has been lobbying hard against it. And this is actually something which they have tried to push through several times. And college football players, I know last year in particular, were really beginning to talk a little bit about this. And there's at least a little bit of momentum behind it. But of course, the NCAA is throwing everything they possibly can against this. They really are a cartel. I mean, whenever, the way Justice Kavanaugh is writing about it, it's true. It's like, you can't define your industry as one which makes money by not paying its employees. It's BS. And yeah, it's (laughs) it's, it's, it's basically what it is, right? Let's boil it down. Imagine Amazon being like, they just, for the love of the warehouse work. They're getting trained. This is apprenticeship. It's like slave, you know, literally that's, it's like modern, modern forms of obviously not the same thing as chattel slavery. Okay. So don't anybody go and quote that, but indentured servitude and all of that had its own very ugly parts in early American history Mm -hmm. and in Europe. And I think that there's a lot to be said about what's happening. And by the way, like we always focus on the stars who then go on to the NBA, go on to the NFL, the overwhelming majority of these athletes are not going to be making it to the next level. This is it for them. I think it's like 3%. Yeah, really, this know. is this is it for them in terms of their career, that their athletic career, and they deserve to be paid commensurate with the profits that are being made off of them um, for their skills and their labor. Wow, you guys must really like listening to our voices. Well, I know this is annoying. Instead of making you listen to a Viagra commercial, when you're done, check out the other podcasts I do with Marshall Kosloff called The Realignment. We talk a lot about the deeper issues that are changing, realigning in American society. You always need more Crystal and Saga in your daily lives. Take care, guys. All right, Crystal, what are your breaking points today? Well, right now, the Trump administration and Senate Republicans are urging the Supreme Court to strike down the entire Affordable Care Act and all of its patient protections. Republicans are scrambling to confirm this nominee as fast as possible because they need one more Trump judge on the bench before November 10th to win and strike down the entire Affordable Care Act. This is not hyperbole. This is not a hypothetical. This is happening. That was then-Senator Kamala Harris during confirmation hearings for Amy Coney Barrett, asserting that Barrett's addition to the court would almost certainly be the end of the Affordable Care Act. This is not hyperbole, she said. This is happening. Of course, Senator Harris and every other Democrat confidently predicting the demise of Obamacare turned out to be wrong. Last week, the majority ruled that plaintiffs in the case did not have standing, leaving the ACA ultimately unscathed. ACB joined the majority in protecting that law. Now, this outcome was predictable, and in fact, we predicted it at the time. That's not to say, though, that from a left perspective, this court poses no threat to egalitarian values or the quality of life of ordinary Americans. On the contrary, the problem is, when it comes to the Supreme Court, the media seems to only know how to cover culture, things like LGBTQ rights, abortion, guns, and I would submit Obamacare has achieved full culture war status. Now, I'm not saying these issues are not important. But covering them and obsessing over them exclusively can create a false impression of the court and can also mask the profound way that the court has transformed the nation into a corporatocracy. 
It also makes it easy for Chief Justice John Roberts and the other conservative justices to confuse the public into thinking the court isn't really so regressive. Throw a bone to the liberals on Obamacare and everyone immediately goes, golly gee, maybe we were wrong about ACB and Kavanaugh and Gorsuch. Maybe the court isn't so bad after all. On the other hand, you're much less likely to hear about this opinion, which came down yesterday. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday handed a victory to Goldman Sachs in its bid to avoid an investor class action lawsuit accusing the bank of hiding conflicts of interest when creating risky subprime securities before the 2008 financial crisis. So, in a decision that was authored by Amy Coney Barrett, the court threw on a decision by the second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that would have allowed that class action lawsuit to move forward. Essentially, what happened is this. Rewind back to the 2008 financial crisis. One of the things we learned about Goldman's outrageously criminal behavior was at the very same time they were selling certain securities to their clients, they were also betting against those same securities with full knowledge that they were total and complete garbage. So just to restate, Goldman knew they were selling crap. They were betting against that crap. And they stood to benefit by having their own clients bid up the price of the crap so that their gains in the inevitable crash would be more spectacular. David Sorota, I want to give him credit here. He flagged the story for me and reminded me of this memorable exchange between a Goldman executive and Senator Carl Levin of Michigan about the shitty deals, his words, Goldman was pushing on their clients. Look what your sales team was saying about Timberwolf. Boy, that Timberwolf was one shitty deal. Mr. They sold that Mr. Chairman, deal. this email was from the head of the division, not the sales force. This Whatever was it was, it was a, it's, an th internal, th it's an internal Goldman document. Th this was an email to me in late June. Right. And you sold Timberwolf. No, no. You sold Timberwolf after as well. We, we did trades after that. Yeah. Okay. It's and the trades after. Some you, context. Yeah. Might be helpful. That context, let me tell you, the context is mighty clear. June 22 is the date of this email. Boy, that Timberwolf was one shitty deal. How much of that shitty deal did you sell to your clients after June 22, 2007? <laughs> the answer to the senator's question was hundreds of millions of dollars of that shitty deal was sold after that email was sent. And by the way, it's not just some nameless, faceless, rich ghoul that's getting hurt by this type of fraud. Obviously, the entire economy was rocked by the cumulative weight of Wall Street's crimes. But in this specific instance with Goldman Sachs, some of the institutional investors fleeced in these schemes are rather important to working class Americans. For example, the Arkansas teacher retirement system, relying on Goldman's lies about how they always put the client first, they were hurt greatly by their investments in Goldman Sachs. In fact, the Arkansas teacher retirement system, they were part of this class action lawsuit that led ultimately to this ruling by the Supreme Court. With this decision for Goldman, ACB is doing what she was really put on the court to do, which was to protect the American plutocracy. She's not alone, though. Her majority opinion handing a win to Goldman Sachs wasn't just the work of Trump's evil justices. Liberals Kagan and Breyer, they both signed on to the opinion agreeing that Goldman Sachs should be protected from accountability. Don't you just love to see that bipartisanship in action, guys? In this way, the Supreme Court is kind of like every other institution in this country. 
They play to the crowd and whatever their perceived interests are on culture war issues, allowing them to quietly hand more and more power to corporations and away from workers without anyone really even noticing. The media typically plays along, creating a conversation and perception of the court that is a funhouse mirror distortion of its true intent. Chief Justice Roberts, he's a savvy operator. He knows the credibility and makeup of the court is in serious peril. So unlike Republican politicians, whose incentives are to be ever more radical on the right-wing culture war, Roberts sees his interest in mollifying liberals, not rocking the boat too much so that efforts to reform the court into a more representative and frankly less awful institution don't pick up too much steam. New York Times is out with a pretty interesting piece on how the court appears to be very intentionally issuing opinions that can keep it from facing full liberal ire and backlash on culture war issues. Roberts has been pushing extremely narrow rulings on the most hot-button cultural issues, things like gay rights and Obamacare, getting majorities, including some liberals, to agree on these small and very technical opinions that have very little in the way of broader implications. In other words, they know that while there would be hell to pay for a major ruling on gay rights, they can give the store away to Goldman Sachs and barely anyone will even notice. As Sagar and Rachel Bovard as well have long pointed out, this is also part of a shell game of manipulation of the religious right. The Federalist Society, bankrolled by wealthy business interests, churns out nominee after nominee, pledging to be a true believing social conservative. But what those business interests are really paying for is to make sure the nominees are not going to give workers power or hold business or Wall Street to account ever. So in the same way Democrats lie to their voters about the threat to Obamacare in order to gin up votes, Republicans routinely lie to their voters about nominating justices who will roll back abortion rights and protect wedding cake bakers or whatever the issue du jour is. Meanwhile, in court after court, the big money interests rack up win after win after win. Just another front in the class war that America's plutocrats are relentlessly pursuing even as they aggressively pretend it does not exist. And Sagar, we talked about the NCAA. One more thing, I promise. Just wanted to make sure you knew about my podcast with Kyle Kalinske. It's called Crystal Kyle and Friends, where we do long-form interviews with people like Noam Chomsky, Cornell West, and Glenn Greenwald. You can listen on any podcast platform, or you can subscribe over on Substack to get the video a day early. We're going to stop bugging you now. Enjoy. All right, Sagar, what are you looking at? Well, I mean, one of my favorite things to do uh, is I say, I told you so. It's a natural human (laughs) inclination. I'm not above it. I love being right, or at very least, one of the first to popularize an idea. Some of you may have noticed, but Crystal and I were recently on Joe Rogan's podcast. Joe asked me an interesting question about social conservatism, how it applies to both my views and to the right generally. I turned the tables. I actually explained to Joe, I thought the new social issues of our time have nothing to do with many of the fights of the past. And in my explanation, I named Dave Portnoy as the current largest conservative icon in the country. Let's review for those who missed it. I think social conservatism today is actually one of the best pieces I read on this, shout out to Matthew Walther, is called Rise of the Barstool Conservatives. So if you were to ask me who I think like the most, uh, the biggest like right-wing social icon in America right now, 25 years ago, I would have said like Franklin Graham or something like that. I think he's Dave Portnoy. I I really think it is somebody like Portnoy who is anti-PC. The, yeah. the current social conservatism, or at least the way that I think things are moving forward, is anti-woke, anti-PC, and that is where I think the emerging fights are. 
I didn't invent the thesis. As I said, I stole it from Matthew Walter, who is a columnist over at The Week. But interestingly enough, someone else appears to have taken notice and added to the discourse, with Politico magazine writing a new piece titled, quote, How Republicans Became the Barstool Party. Now, this might confuse some casual observers of politics, because the question even arises, is Dave Portnoy conservative? By his account, not really, if you're thinking in terms of old ways of doing business. Dave is pro-choice. He's had multiple sex tapes released, which he's proud of. Um, He's pro-gay marriage. So what conservative thing is about him? Well, look, he's conservative in the way that Trump kind of was. He just refuses to bow to the liberal intelligentsia, and he likes to drive them crazy. Portnoy refuses to apologize for past jokes. He basically holds up a middle finger up to the elite. He was one of the most prominent people against lockdowns. And look, to his eternal credit, he raised tens of millions of dollars for small businesses. Every time he tells the liberal media, F you, he gets richer and more popular. Walter describes of Trump and of Portnoy describing the phenomenon this way, quote, Trump recognized there are millions of Americans who do not oppose or even care about abortion or same-sex marriage, much less stem cell research or any of the other causes that had animated traditional conservatives. He adds, quote, Instead, he correctly intuited the new culture war would be fought over very different and very more nebulous issues, vague concerns about political correctness, SJWs, opposition to the popularization of critical race theory, sentimentality about the American flag and the military, the rights of male undergraduates to engage in fornication while intoxicated without fear of the Title X mafia. That's basically it right there. That's Portnoy's appeal and the direction of the new American right. The fights of the past are in the past. The fights of the future are how do we teach our kids history? Is it okay to be outspokenly patriotic in popular culture and in elite circles? Do we say Merry Christmas again? (laughs) Can we say, quote unquote, problematic words? Can we roll our eyes at people's pronouns and their email signatures without being called homophobic? (laughs) Now, look, I know none of these seem that important, but let's be real. This is what gets people going in America, whether you like it or not. This is how Trump won 10 million more votes in 2020. And I suspect if the GOP ever wins a popular vote margin in the future again, it's going to look like Dave Portnoy's fan base. Pretty diverse, pretty male. A huge base of support outside of its traditional voting space. I call it grill dad conservatism. (laughs) I actually think it's the future. And look, already in the 2020 data, you can see signs of this everywhere. Hispanic males voted for Trump at a higher rate than anyone else compared to 2016 and cited Trump's opposition to woke shibboleths like defund the police and lockdowns as the number one reason they voted for him. You see the same thing in the modest but still noticeable increase in black men that voted for Trump. And ironically, the only group who voted for him at a lower rate was white men, which I will find eternally funny. But look, I don't want to fully sing the praises of barstool conservatism because if I have one great worry, it's this. The barstoolification of the GOP can easily win, but economically, things aren't going to be too great. As Walter writes, quote, Where will barstool conservatism leave what remains of the old conservative movement? In the case of free market dogmatists, I believe there's almost zero daylight between them. The policy papers on why blockchain-enabled future markets in organ donation brought to you by Manscaped Mm. will revitalize Dayton, Ohio, is going to write itself. (laughs) Part of Portnoy's core ethos is an economic libertarianism. And look, I mean, it served him quite well. It's obviously evident in his stand for retail investors during GameStop and more. But when you translate that to public policy, you actually get a lot of the same old Paul Ryan stuff with a new flair on it. 
Barstool and conservatism could easily end up being the new cover album for the tax cut GOP of old. All of this, I guess, is to say is if you want to keep on your eye on where things are headed, look to our culture for people who are anti-PC and anti-woke. That's where the new conservative movement is and what actually probably could win and who will likely be in charge a decade from now. It's interesting, Crystal. There's a lot of debate. Joining us now to talk about the mess that is the New York City mayoral race this year is Ross Barkin. He is a contributor to The Nation, wrote a fantastic piece there we're going to talk about. He's also author of a brand new book out today, The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus, and the Fall of New York. Timely stuff. Um, Congrats on the book, Ross. Great to see you. Good to see you, Ross. Thank you, and thank you for having me. A very crazy day in New York City, and also the release of my book. Still, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> big <laughs> day t- for you, you man. That perfectly yeah. to make sure it dropped on a low key day where you could really focus on it. So, g- good job there. Um, I want to ask you about the book actually, but first, just break down for us for people who haven't been immersed in the details of this mayor's race, which has like completely gone off the rails. Who are the main players? What's the state of the race? Who's the front runner? What have the contours been like? Sure. So right now there are four Democrats who all have some shot at winning. The front runner in the polls for the last month has been the Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, and he's been followed by different candidates at different times. Originally, Andrew Yang, the uh, celebrity former presidential candidate, was the front runner. He no longer is. You have Maya Wiley, who's the Blasio's former counsel an MSNBC pundit, and you have Kathleen Garcia, who was de Blasio's former sanitation commissioner. And there was a fifth candidate who was once one of the top contenders, Scott Stringer, but he was accused of sexual assault. The allegation was never substantiated, but that really derailed his campaign. So there's really four contenders. Adams is the favorite. Three of them are running explicitly. I would I would define them as moderates, and one, Wiley, is kind of off occupying this left liberal lane, but certainly most of the candidates are talking about you know, issues like crime, public safety, are pro-charter school, and um, have come out explicitly against the funding of the police. So very interesting race coming off of what happened in 2020. Yeah. And so, Ross, you wrote this piece, let's put it up there on the screen, um, in The Nation, which I saw get some play, where you're talking a little bit about how Eric Adams in particular, who has been really kind of a strange figure who uses identity politics um, in order to cover for some of these corporate things that he's doing. Could you just explain that a bit? Yeah, so Eric Adams, he he has fascinating political history. He was a police captain for a long time. He was in the transit police, then the NYPD. He was elected to the state Senate and then to the relatively powerless perch of our president. He would be the, the city's second black mayor And he is someone who is both very anti-woke, I would say, in terms of he talks a lot about, um, you know, public safety and crime and being tough on crime. He said he'd carry a gun on him if he uh, was elected mayor because he can legally do that. He has a history of making very incendiary statements. He once told uh, people who are from out of town, so-called gentrifiers, to go back to Iowa. Um, At the same time, (laughs) identity politics. So. I don't know if, that, if that's like the little woke side of him or it's more just kind of a classic cynical ploy, but repeatedly throughout this campaign and throughout his political career, he has used race as a way to deflect whether um, talking about 
tenant protections as an attack on black wealth, even though real estate developers and landlords are almost exclusively uh, very wealthy white people um, or these kind of large corporate firms. Um, and also, you know, saying he can, uh, you know, illegally use these parking placards because the last former president got to do it. He was white. So you can't have corruption for the white guy, not for the black guy. So he's, mm. he's a very handy and incendiary figure, a little bit like Rudy Giuliani, maybe more left wing Rudy and even tiny shades of Trump. I, I don't like to liken anyone to Trump, but he's definitely someone who makes a lot of outrageous statements. And it can be very hard to keep track of all of them. I mean, he's really weaponized race in what is a disgraceful um, manner in this campaign. And it's been called out by, you know, by Wiley. And certainly some of his attacks have been on uh, Yang and Catherine Garcia, who kind of teamed up together. They campaigned together, including on Juneteenth. Um, Eric Adams tried to pretend like that was some racial affront yeah. and they were trying to disenfranchise black voters. He likened it to horrific legacy of the Jim Crow South and poll taxes. I mean, that's how aggressive he's been in essentially using these identity politics terms and the very real scourge of racism to cover for what is essentially a like corporate police state agenda, you had this paragraph in your piece that I think is really important because it takes it out of the context of just the New York City mayor's race and poses a larger question for the left. You say, for a long time, many on the left have favored an identitarian politics over one that aligns class with race. If identity is elevated above class and critiques of capitalism no longer matter, politicians like Adams will be emboldened. As a black man, he's been able to effectively denounce calls for greater tenant protections on the grounds they would adversely affect minority landlords while rebuking all criticism of himself as a racist. Um, as racist, so he's basically saying, like, if you're critiquing me, then you must be racist, no matter how legitimate the critique is. His supporters have attacked ranked choice voting itself, erroneously claiming that it weakens the power of non-white voters. So again, this is a guy who is basically cynically exploiting some of the, you know, well-intentioned proclivities of a lot of people on the left to position himself as a progressive while his ideals and what he stands for is anything but. Yeah, so I, I think Adams poses a unique danger to the left if he wins, and it looks like he may very well win because he has a lot of the populist rhetoric and he's someone who would come in with a real populist coalition working class blacks and latinos labor unions these kind of dying outer borough political machines and he could say on one hand credibly i was elected by the people but unlike sort of you know left populist type politicians there will be no large redistributive agenda right eric adams is backed by like andrew yang is supported by you know billionaire charter school supporters billionaire real estate developers the city's power elite are very excited about Eric Adams. They might be a bit wary because he is unpredictable and incendiary. They prefer someone like Michael Bloomberg, who, you know, very much fit in a box, whereas Adams used to be a Republican, now he's a Democrat, he's all over the place. But fundamentally, he's not a challenge to capital. He's not a challenge to the power elite. At the same time, he's very adept at invoking race and making it seem like he himself is some kind of underdog or, or some kind of populist, like a lot of candy politicians. So challenging him, organizing against him will be difficult in my eyes because he has a strong coalition and he's very good 
at using these weapons of identity against the left. That's why I'm always warning my friends on the left, you really have to pair the class critique with race. Otherwise, you get this kind of woke capitalism, which is what Eric Adams ultimately represents. So, Ross, do New York City progressives, how are they going to square that uh, working class blacks are likely to elect a black mayor who wants more cops and doesn't want to defund the police? I just feel like this has to be one of the biggest reckonings for what's happening with left politics in New York City right now. I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see that reckoning. So after the 2020 election, you know, I and some other people on the left were saying, look, you know, New York City, Trump grew his vote share in working class Latino neighborhoods and then to a lesser extent in working class black neighborhoods. He did not really grow his share in white neighborhoods. And this was true nationally. This really followed national trends. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting for like the professional left reckoning with that. And it just never came. I, I think, unfortunately, a lot of these kind of NGO type groups, you know, they really have incentives to ignore what's going on. So you have you have this, these weird scenarios where, you know, a, a nonprofit NGO organization will say we speak for the working class. Meanwhile, the working class is voting a certain way. I, I yeah. think there are smarter, cannier groups like DSA, but still there is this disconnect and the reckoning has not come. Yeah, yeah and even the like left candidate in the race now, Maya Wiley, the only marginally progressive person who has a shot. I mean, she was like on MSNBC every day, opposed to Bernie Sanders. So and Scott Stringer, who was the other one, was also like, you know, a Hillary Clinton type progressive, I guess. Um, so the left really didn't have much of a showing in this race or anyone to root for whatsoever. Um Look, we don't know what's going to happen, and ranked choice makes this very dicey in order in order to effectively predict what's going to happen in this race. First time having ranked choice voting in the New York City mayoral primary. Um, but Andrew Yang was once solidly at the top of this field and has really fallen off to where, you know, I think if he were to win at this point, it would be a tremendous comeback. He's a, a large underdog at this point. What happened that caused him to fall off in the polls to that significant amount? So my theory is Andrew Yang really lost educated liberal voters. Unlike mm. the national Democratic electorate, the left liberal PMC part of the Democratic electorate in New York City is a lot bigger. So, you know, Elizabeth Warren flopped on the national stage, right? I think an Elizabeth Warren type candidate could do a lot better in New York City just because this kind of, you know, wealthier, affluent type Democrat who consumes a lot of news and, and has a graduate degree matters, right? You really can't win the mayorality being entirely shut out by them. And, and my theory so far is that despite their revulsion towards Eric Adams, they're more accepting of Eric Adams because he's been an elected official. His gaps take on a different quality. Andrew Yang really came in with a lot of energy and excitement. He just has shown a real knowledge gap around certain issues. He's gotten a lot of media scrutiny Eric Adams did not really get any media scrutiny until I would say around May of you know 2021, mm. um, mm. and almost entirely absent from the media. It's very strange to even see this. Whereas Andrew Yang, wall to wall coverage, I think ultimately that hurt him. I think if Eric Adams got the level of scrutiny Yang did, he would not be so high in the polls. That being said, I think Andrew Yang did a really poor job of mitigating the fears of progressives and also at least trying to assuage some of this kind of educated liberal voter base, which mm. does matter. 
Bill de Blasio, one with educated liberals, one with working class black voters. Eric Adams will not do well with educated liberals, but my own sense is he's probably better positioned in ranked choice voting to show up on their ballots more mm. than Yang. That's still yeah. Yang listened to those uh, Yang listened to those consultants, those Bloomberg consultants a little too much, I think. Um, tell us about the book. Congrats on it coming out today. Again, it's called The Prince, Andrew Cuomo, Coronavirus in the Fall of New York. We've certainly been talking to you about these topics for a while. What is it that you wanted to dig into in this book and expose about Andrew Cuomo and his uh, reign as governor there? So I really see this book as a rejoinder to the propaganda memoir he put out last year. The focus mm. of late is mayor's race, but Andrew Cuomo is still the king of New York. He has not resigned. He's inordinately powerful. He wants to run for a fourth term. So this is a book about the horrible year of COVID in New York State. It's about how Andrew Cuomo failed New York, how he downplayed COVID, compared it to the flu like Donald Trump did, was late to respond, mismanaged nursing homes, courted scandal and controversy. And it's also about his political history. So if you're interested in kind of how Cuomo came to be who he is, how he betrayed the left over and over again, and really worked to foil the ambitions of Democrats. This is definitely a book for you. It, it's pretty, it's very readable. It's fairly short. And if you really, you know, you read the memoir last year or ignored the memoir last year and you mm. want to really find out what happened with Andrew Cuomo, what happened with COVID, who is this guy, why is he so powerful? I really think uh, this is a book you will enjoy and you should go buy it from Four Books today. I'm awesome. going to go ahead and assume our audience did not read the Andrew Cuomo <laughs> memoir. However, they should read your book because you have been the most astute observer, one of the most astute, astute observers, certainly, of Cuomo and his failures from the very beginning. You weren't buying into the media hype. Um, you've had already a lot of journalistic revelations that have been important, and you're an incredible writer. Everybody, we're going to put the information for the book down in the description so you can find it. Definitely check it out. Um, again, Ross, great to have you. Thanks for joining us on this spectacularly busy day for you. Thank you, Ross. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thanks, everybody, for watching, guys. We really appreciate it. As a reminder, if you want to watch the full show completely uncut, you can become a premium member today. You get to listen to it as a full audio show as well, and you get to help support our work here. We're 100% powered by Supercast. We love them. It's an awesome partnership, and we will see you all on Thursday. Have a great day, guys. We'll see you back here on Thursday. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to the show, guys. We really appreciate it. To help other people find the show, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. really helps other people find the show. As always, a special thank you to Supercast for powering our premium membership. If you want to find out more, go to crystalandsager.com. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.
I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.